You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It feels like the NFL has been forever changed, and maybe I'm being hyperbolic. We've certainly seen strong accusations against the league. We've seen moments of great turmoil for the league, whether it comes down to issues of racism, sexism, uh, concussions. But it does feel like it will be difficult for the league to behave as it always has. Now that the Brian Flores suit is out, now that multiple teams have been named, and now that we start the process once again for the millionth time of addressing issues of diversity and hiring in the NFL, but this time with a very different and very dangerous for the NFL precedent set um, from the lawsuit and those who are speaking out at Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, that precedent being somebody who is potentially near the peak of his powers in in Brian Flores, who is still a finalist for jobs, who is very much in the conversation as one of the best, better coaches in the league that's really a hot commodity, being willing to sacrifice all that for the greater good, which is not something we usually see. It's very easy to go after the narratives and, and the narrators in these cases and try to take them out. That would be very difficult to do, which means the NFL... And, and the teams named have to take this very seriously. What will they do to react? Fitz, it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. We saw the NFL's first reaction, which was, according to most of us, a very poorly thought out statement. Yeah, the statement to me made no sense. And the statement made no sense for a couple of reasons. One, it doesn't really say anything other than we believe this has no merit. And two, it doesn't. It didn't take any time to actually look into it. So I felt like the statement, I expected the NFL would say something that we'd all roll our eyes at, something along the lines of, we're going to look into this and we take these claims very seriously, we'll do our own internal investigation, all the things that they would say. Because it's an active lawsuit even, I could buy, we're not commenting on this time, but we will be investigating every ounce of this as we figure out what's going on. Like, I could buy all of those. Instead, they just came out with a very blanket this has no merit, there is nothing to it type statement that has me a little bit uh, worried for how the NFL thinks this is going to go. If they think this is going to be an easy conversation, oh, they don't. it isn't. They don't. I think legally what you're meant and told to say is this is without merit. It's what the Blackhawks said about the sexual assault lawsuit that came through from, from the coach incident that very clearly had merit. Uh, I, I believe that's probably a specific language that, that that is offered up that won't get you in trouble later for libel if the, if it's true, but allows you to dis, discard you know what's being said. I, I think it's a terrible move because it makes it feel like they don't care. And then Ryan Smith, the ESPN legal analyst on KJ and Max, added in that it also makes it look like they're pointing the finger at Brian Flores, who, regardless of how this goes, should be a sympathetic figure because of the nature of what he's accusing them of. Here's the problem the NFL is in and why I was surprised by that. I think they could have tried to thread the needle a little bit better and said, we're going to investigate these claims, but from what we believe, they're without merit. At least then you're saying somebody has made some serious claims, including to a rule that we say is crucial to the league. We have to investigate. But we've talked to the owners. We don't believe it's with merit. The the problem with not saying that is you sort of lend the implication to – Brian Flores isn't telling the truth. And this is the very thing that he's fighting against. Yeah. 
it's a bad look for the NFL, no matter which way you slice it. And that's the first response we've seen from them. We've seen individual statements from the teams named rejecting what Brian Flores has said from the Broncos. They, they claim they weren't late to the interview with him. They weren't, you know, suffering from hangovers, that they took it very seriously. He alleges their lateness, their the state that they were in, and the questions and engagement during the interview made clear it was a sham. The Giants say that it was down to the 11th hour, and then they made their decision on Dable, which is, you know, according to those Belichick tes- texts, not something that, that that Brian Flores and others believe to be true. Um, teams are going out of their way to reject, including the, the Dolphins and, and both the idea of tanking on purpose for money and also um, allegations that Stephen Ross tried to sort of corner Brian Flores on a yacht, such a Miami way to do it, uh, to meet with a quarterback outside of the allowed uh, dates. Um, all of these things are so far being rejected, but legally there takes a lot more than a statement fits. And Amber Wilson, who is both a lawyer and an ESPN radio host, was on Canty and Golick Jr. to talk about the next step, which is legally how will the NFL respond? First thing that's going to happen is the NFL is going to file a motion to dismiss. In that motion to dismiss, they're going to argue that this shouldn't even be handled in a court of law, that this should be handled in arbitration under the CBA. I think that they're probably going to have a pretty strong argument because at the heart of this, it's employment discrimination, and they're going to say anything as it pertains to employment is going to be handled under the CBA, uh, and it's contractually obligated to be sent to arbitration, and arbitration wouldn't mean this goes away for the NFL. It would mean this goes away for us uh, in terms of uh, the media and in terms of us discussing it because all of a sudden the doors would be closed, whereas obviously it stays in court. It would be public record. Yeah, I mean, that matters, fits because it is so much harder to do segments to talk about this stuff when all that information goes away. We have all of the stuff alleged in the lawsuit because it's public record. We've got the text messages from Belichick because it's public record. Think about some of the other things that have gone away because the NFL did not want discovery. Gruden and those emails, right? All that was released was Gruden's. We know there's so much more to that, but they don't want it out there. Everything having to do with Kaepernick, which was settled by a lawsuit. All of the things that could have come out in that. Think about, I just thought about this the other day. Do you remember the Saints and their involvement with potentially engaging with the local churches on covering up sexual abuse of children? Oh God, I totally forgot about that. Right, we all did. Probably because there wasn't any more public record for us to pick through. I don't know why. I haven't followed up on it, but I just thought about that the other day, and I thought it is much more difficult for us to continue these conversations when the well of information dries up. So the NFL, of course, would like to handle it that way. And as you pointed out, I think that's what they've done with with the Gruden suit, right? Exactly. So, you know, John Gruden filing a lawsuit against uh, the NFL last week, they they responded by saying this belongs in arbit- uh, arbitration because it's an employee-employer uh, moment. So uh, what they're trying to do in that case is the same exact thing, uh, take this information and, and bury it as much as they can. That's what the NFL can't handle. And that's what I think makes this particularly interesting because, you know, in most cases, the NFL can either outsue you, which is fine, they can outspend you in any law, co- law system, right? Or they're going to offer you a ton of money to just go away but what do you do if you have a coach that right now is not worried about the money he's worried about actual change and by worrying by worrying about that he's not going to go away they wants to keep it as loud as possible so I, I think one of the most powerful things about the original statement we all saw was that there were texts from Bill Belichick which is sort of a coach's way of saying hey 
I'm all in. Flores is saying I'm all in on making sure that even if it burns bridges, I let the people know how this really works. That is a dangerous element for the NFL to try and fight because that's somebody that wants to make sure that most importantly, information about fixing games, information about hiring practices, how the interviews were actually done, every team involved. Then it becomes public, and once it becomes public, we can't hide behind the thought that, well, maybe it's not as bad as people think. Then you suddenly have to face the actual information, the actual details, and realize that so much of this is just a farce. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz were presented by Progressive Insurance. I think your point uh, specifically, we don't know, uh, unspecified damages is what Flores is seeking. But the fact that it is a class action lawsuit, to your point, this is not about him saying, okay, I'm not going to get the jobs I wanted, so I'm just going to go for the money that I'm looking for. This is him saying, I want to gather up all of the people that I think have been wronged by this, and I want to take them all with me. And that is a much scarier thing for the NFL. And I want to get into that next. I want to go back to what I started with, which is we usually attack the, the plaintiff, the narrator, the accuser in these situations, the person going up against the status quo who's disrupting what we've all gotten used to. We usually attack them. I'll tell you why Brian Flores is not the guy to get after in that situation. Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. What it means for Flores and some of the other folks coming out and speaking in defense of what he's arguing. It's all coming up next. Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Brian Flores, a guy who was sort of inexplicably fired by the Dolphins after having two winning seasons, their first since 2003, ends up on the market where he's expected to be a massive candidate for one of the nine open jobs. And though four have been filled, five are still open, and he is a finalist, at least before all this went down, for the Saints head coach job and the Texans with interviews set up to continue that process. And now is when he decides to press the red button and blow it all up. What does that tell us about what he's fighting for and the veracity of his statements? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you can save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. So Fitz, Brian Flores did a couple interviews today. Um... One of them was on Get Up, and and he spent some time today talking about um, why now and also the reaction he had to some of these triggers that set him off to decide this lawsuit was the right move. And here he is talking about his reaction to the texts that he got from Bill Belichick, who thought he was texting Brian Dayball to congratulate him on the Giants gig several days before Brian Flores was even set to interview. Disbelief, humiliation, that was a tough pill to swallow. And, and that, you know, I have a great amount of respect for Bill and Brian Dayball. Um, Brian's a great, great coach. I think he's going to do a, a, a great job as a head coach in this league. I was, I was upset that I wasn't getting a true opportunity to show what I can do, to show what I can bring to a team. Yeah, Fitz, this is not a down-and-out guy. This isn't a guy reaching for relevance. This isn't a guy who's gone through the cycle year after year to no avail and at this point is just like, let me get a cash payout. This is a very well-received guy who by all accounts was going to get another head coaching job. And I think what he said right there is the key to all of this because this happened no more than a week ago. In one week, he went from focusing on job opportunities and the next gig to I'm suing the league. 
This is anger. This is principles being his motivation. This is, I don't care if a lifetime of work that set me up to finally get these jobs is going to be put very much at risk. This matters to me more. And that is why it is extremely worrisome, as you pointed out, for the league, because it's him, it's the class action of bringing other folks into it, and it's the, it's the I don't care. It's, it's similar to Kaepernick, for those who remember that Kaepernick was actually a very good quarterback who went to the Super Bowl, not those who believed him to be a declining, skillless guy who wouldn't have been hired regardless. And so when the same happens, which it likely will, where he gets blackballed, we better not take years to realize it's happening like some of us did with Kaepernick. I mean, you're talking about a coach, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You're talking about a coach that won seven straight games this year. And, you know, you start thinking about the Dolphins. In the last two years, the Dolphins have had their issues early in the season. But when the team could have quit, they found a different level of fight. And they fought to play for him. And they fought hard for him. You're talking about what was the most, I think, shocking firing uh, as the season came to an end. Most people didn't think that would be his reality. And now, to your point, somebody that's still in conversations with interviews and now that becomes a very difficult thing and you know I I hate to use the phrase good old boys club but that's what it feels like ownership is in the NFL and you've got 32 owners that now say okay well this coach is suing not only all of us but then some of us very specifically and this coach is uh, you know breaking whatever those uh, those codes are by uh, releasing texts from other coaches right like so it feels like if you're Brian Flores you have to know that the consequence of this action is likely that it's going to be difficult for you to coach in the NFL again. That's why there's so much power to the message for me because when you've got somebody that's willing to spill the beans on everything because it's just the, being done the wrong way, now what you have is somebody that has the ability to bring, bring honesty but also through that same voice has no giving you know what about whatever the consequence is. That's a that's a powerful message, and that's a way to actually curate change. Like, if somebody's worried about their own future in the process, it becomes much more difficult to actually accomplish great change. Through this process, I'm looking at somebody that's saying, hey, if i got to torch everything and leave it all behind, it's hard for me to see Brian Flores getting a gig now in this environment. But that's also weird because if he doesn't get a gig in the environment, does that make his lawsuit even more have yeah. even more merit? Yeah, the NFL has painted itself in a corner. It's Spain and Fitz. Your, your point is a valid one. If you have no future to worry about, people are less likely to take your claim seriously because they think you're grasping for something at the end of the road. He is not at the end of the road. That is why he is in such power. And to your point, the question is, what does the rest of the league do in reaction to this. This is a fraternity, right? This is a brotherhood. This is a group of men that stand for something. This is about toughness. The NFL uses all those words. I'm not even going to get into end racism on the sidelines and the end zones. I'm not even going to get into diversity is at the core of everything we do. I'm going to go back to the standards that we can all agree the NFL believes it stands for. It's fraternity, brotherhood, toughness. How tough are all of the other coaches in the league if they are not willing to speak up for Brian Flores here? How tough are the most tenured, most respected, most certain of their jobs, coaches, GMs, presidents, owners in this league, if they are not willing to stand up as part of this discussion and give their support to Brian Flores? What about Bill Belichick? He was ready to text Brian Dayball congratulations. Would he have been ready to text Brian Flores and tell him, Hey, I think that interview you have coming up is a fake. Mm. Uh, man, that is a golly, that is a tough question, right? And that's his guy. Although Brian Flores does have a four and two record against Bill Belichick, so maybe he's a little salty. Which, by the way, again, this guy was not at the end of his road. 
This guy had a 4-2 and two record against Bill Belichick and the Patriots. That's something. And Brian Dayball was about to get the text from Bill and the congratulations. Brian Flores wasn't about to get the, hey, man, I'm a little worried that this system is not, is not playing you right. Well, and now you have, you know, Hugh Jackson. And by the way, we'll speak to Hugh Jackson's attorney a little later in the show in about 20 minutes. Uh, but you have Marvin Lewis. You have other coaches of note that are coming out and saying, I experienced similar things. And you have other coaches of note saying, not only that, but I have documented proof of similar experiences. This is where things get really interesting. Because to your point, what it was, what's really going to take to create any sort of change is something that the NFL can't get around. And having a group of coaches come together, especially coaches that, that have had success. I mean, Marvin Lewis has a, a, a really untouchable reputation around most league circles, right? He's still a beloved guy. You had Tony Dungy today tweeting about all of this, mm-hmm. saying, I, I sent a letter to the league a year ago. When you start having respected voices come out through all of this process that back up Brian Flores, it becomes much more difficult for whoever wants to say, well, this is about the accuser. It, it becomes much more difficult for somebody to fall floors in this process and it becomes more real that you're going to have to just acknowledge the process is broken brian flores also alleges that the dolphins not only is he being done wrong by the interview process and the shams of interviews but that when he was a head coach his his reputation was on the line to be tarnished by a team that didn't want to win here's what he said about the conversations with dolphins ownership about tanking you know that was uh a conversation about not doing as much as we needed to do to win football games. Take a flight, go on vacation. I'll give you $100,000 per loss. Like, those are just the you know, exact words. Um, and it's not something, look, I deal in truth. And I, I say that to the players as well. I'm going to give you good news, bad news, but it's going to be the truth. It's going to be honest. So to disrespect the game that way was something that, you know, trust was lost and there were certainly some, some strained relationships. And ultimately, I think that was you know, to my demise. Fitz will get into what it means for players to find out that their teams have been asked to tank. But when you have coaches that are likely to get one shot, and we know particularly with black coaches that they are rehired at a much lesser rate, and then you get in there and they expect you to lose on purpose so that when you leave, everyone can say he wasn't successful, he shouldn't get another chance. And we're hearing that from Jackson, we're hearing that from Flores. That's beyond the pale. That's the important no part intended. of this. <laughs> That's the, the important part of this conversation is that it's not just the fact that you were telling people to tank, which, again, there are huge ramifications for the entire league. You're also really limiting somebody's opportunity to go out and get work in the future because they didn't do well enough and nobody's going to admit behind the scenes what they were doing. The layers to this, the, the layers to this mm-hmm. entire process could wreck the NFL. Yeah, I can't wait till we get into the gambling side of the intentional oh, tanking. God. Oh, God. Uh, and everything else. So much more to get to. Uh, Flores' allegations have put a spotlight specifically on the Dolphins and Stephen Ross. We'll get into the fallout from Miami coming up next here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Former Dolphins coach Brian Flores, uh, lawsuit against the NFL and allegations not only that uh, the hiring practices uh, were obviously unfair, but also that the Dolphins asked him to specifically tank games has Miami in the spotlight. So we figured we'd get some flair from Miami, somebody that would know Leroy Horde, former NFL running back. You can hear him on 790. The ticket in Miami joins us now. Leroy, thanks so much uh, for the time. What's the local reaction been to this story? Um, 
Look, we were waiting because, you know, the the team came out with a list of things that, you know, backed, I guess, their firing of uh, Brian Flores and hard to work with and things like that. And he hadn't really said anything. And then all of a sudden he came out with this. And, you know, look, the the whole tanking thing, um, every team does it. Not not the good teams, not the good teams, but there are teams that do it, and they tank for the first pick in the draft. And it's been going on for years. It, it, you know, case in point, how about when you have a young quarterback and management decides we're going to play the old guy and not play the young guy this year, and we're going to put him on, on ice for a year. Um, you know, it, it, it happens. Um the, the the questions that you know we've asked down here is can you be mad at Brian Flores or can you fire Brian Flores if you have um if he's you know if you say he's hard to work with but he's giving you the results because I know a lot of coaches I mean you go to the I remember when I played in Cleveland they didn't really like Bill Belichick you know, he wasn't that personable. He didn't do this. He didn't do that. He gives us nothing. And and lo and behold, he's, look at what happened to him. So I think a lot of it has to do with, one, these organizations that have this two-, three-, and four-year plan don't have the patience to stick with it. And if you are a losing franchise and you bring somebody from a winning culture – then it's going to feel uncomfortable. Um, so I think there's a lot going on as far as, you know, him and and, and, and being a, a black coach. Um, I think his argument is sound. Like um, when we talk about, you know, if this were a white coach, would they be fired or celebrated about the turnaround with this team this year and the season they had last year? I mean, you very seldomly lose your job when you do something at your place of work that hasn't been done in 20 years. And would you so whether be hired he's hard to, to work that? with or not, he's a head coach that's bringing you results. Well, and would you be hired to do that either? If you look at some of the trends, Cully being hired with the Texans ostensibly to lose. Flores right. being hired with the Dolphins, ostensibly to use, to lose. Hugh Jackson being told we're on a four-year plan to lose. Are you hiring these black coaches, hiring them knowing that they need and want that opportunity that they might not get elsewhere, and then assuming that they will be willing to do what the franchise tells them to, it, even if it affects their own record, their own uh, future ability to get jobs, and then again, firing them after the payoff comes in the form of the draft picks and the future, not retaining them for the payoff for the lean years that they oversaw. And that's, of course, part of what Brian Flores is alleging. And Leroy, I imagine after he was fired by the Dolphins, despite that success, that have to, has to have been part of the conversation going on. Is, you know, it, why why yeah, now? Mm-hmm. I mean, think, think about this. I, I make myself a black coach and I'm looking to be a head coach and I've gone through, you know, the position coach. I was a coordinator and I'm starting to get interviews and I get an interview at Houston with the whole Deshaun Watson situation. 
and you know the team's not going to be good. And when you come in there, they say, we have you here and we brought you here for the long haul. This is not going to be a short-term thing. So you take your lumps, you learn on the fly, you try to get the young men to do as best as they can, and then after a year they fire you because they say we didn't get the production we were looking for. Mm-hmm. Now, as a black coach, if you don't take the job, then what is the message? Right. We offered him a job. He didn't want it. Yep. And and so, so you're like to, 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 to take these coaches who are who are, are just thirsting for an opportunity, an opportunity to show what they can do, and put them in these situations and then a couple of years later hold it against them. Yes. Hugh Jackson, there was no chance in the world they were going to win. And he took it under the chin. He answered all the questions. See, the owners and the GMs don't have to answer all these questions on a weekly basis. They put the coach out there for this. And he's a team player. He handles it accordingly. He's a stand-up guy. He explains the, the lumps and, and, and the struggles that they're going to have to go through. He does that in, in, in spirit of the team and the organization, and then you fire him? Why would a coach take that job? But as a black coach, you have to take that job. No other talk- coach has to. So, Leroy, I want to drill back. Like We're running short on time, but I want to get your thoughts because you said earlier everybody tanks. But if we find out in this process that he was actually offered $100,000 per loss, are Dolphins fans going to be okay with that? I mean, it, to to me, if he was offered a hundred thousand, he still didn't do it. So kudos to him. Um, right. You you're asking a guy who's won his whole life to come and lose. It ain't happening. But what about and the Stephen from Ross aspect experience, of it? I lost more games my first year in the NFL than I lost in high school and college put together. Yeah, I, get I think Sarah's asking a, a fair question. I guess question what I'm too. wondering is if if Stephen Ross. As the owner of a team, not only vaguely tanked, but did so with monetary, uh, you know, uh, funds in place to benefit the coach for doing so, and also allegedly tried to set up improper meetings with quarterbacks that were tampering. Is there likely to be uh, uh, an outcome, an accountability from the league for Stephen Ross if that is proved true? Because they can't, especially with gambling, have it out that it's just accepted. Right. I, I mean, but think about this. Is 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 that any different than giving a guy that goes one in thirty one a contract extension? I guess in one case it can be subjective and it can be argued that they believed right. that he had the right stuff to turn it around, versus in another making it very clear that the intention is to lose. Well well in, in both cases the intention was to lose, but but here's the deal. I don't know if you could ever prove that. See, you can prove the situation with the Giants, and you might be able to prove the situation with Denver, okay? Because you got, you got documentation or you got texts that show when these texts came versus when you got the interview versus when uh, Brian Dayball got the job. You have proof of that. But how can you prove any of this? Right. Are you going to go to that quarterback said, and say, said. were yeah. you there? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, it might that's end up being be he most... said, he said with Stephen Ross, which might make it difficult for the NFL to take any action against him. Yeah, Leroy, I mean, we appreciate and, and your time, man. This. 
Go, okay, no problem. Yeah, no, go ahead, go ahead, Leroy. I don't want to cut you off, brother. What you got? I, I said, I said, and, and 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 think about this: all the stuff that happened in Washington, John Groom got fired. Right. So somebody's going to pay. It might not be the person you think, but it's very rarely the owner. It's very rarely. Yeah, that, is, that is that is that is fact, that is Leroy. So we true. appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for the insight. Check him out on seven ninety the ticket in Miami, Leroy Horde. Thanks for hanging out with us, bud. Thanks, Leroy. Anytime. Leroy Hoyt, former NFL running back. Great insight there. We've got another former NFL coach that's weighed in on teams paying for losses. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM channel lady. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Obviously the biggest story of the day. Uh, has been Brian Flores, the former uh, uh, former Dolphins coach, and his lawsuit against the NFL. But there are several different ripples that have happened since then, including other coaches speaking out about what they've experienced. That includes uh, Hugh Jackson, who spoke earlier tonight on SportsCenter about the proof he has that he was also asked to to uh, to not win football games. This is what he said earlier on SportsCenter. I have documentation of written uh, information between me and them on numerous occasions about what we were doing to the teams, what we were doing to the players. There's conversations between them and players, and they know this to be true. And look, I've taken this to the National Football League. When I understood what was going on, I immediately called the National Football League, and I talked to Roger Goodell about what I thought was going on. So this is not new. I mean, I went to arbitration in this case against the Browns where I didn't win anything, you know, so – this is people don't understand that I tried to sound this alarm a while back, uh, but nobody wanted to listen because the record was so bad. So you didn't have a chance to really make a point because all the nervousness was that he was just a bad coach. Well, that's not the case at all. So here we are today because what's happened with Brian, Brian Flores, I can see some similarities uh, between the two. Now we're going to get more insight on those comments now from Kimberly Deemer, who's the executive director of the Hugh Jackson Foundation and uh, Coach Jackson's attorney. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. He just mentioned that this is something he brought to the NFL. Can you tell us when that happened and what their response was? Yes, I can. I think I need to correct something. I think he may have introduced me as his executive director of the foundation and his, and his attorney, and I need to be clear about that. I've never... Um, represented myself as his legal counsel. I was, however, the private investigator on the case, and I represented him in that capacity before the National Football League and the attorneys for the Cleveland Browns organization during this process. With that being said, the the process um, in which I became involved uh, started in the late fall of 2019 and concluded in 2020 when the National Football League dismissed all claims without any further investigation or hearing um, the evidence or seeking any truth to the allegations that were submitted and set forth by the attorney of counsel of record. So, you know, they take this to to Goodell and they take this to the NFL. He alleges that there was a four-year plan. It sounds like Hugh wasn't aware of the bigger picture early in the plan, but later realized that losing was the goal. So how complicit was he in the efforts to lose games? Absolutely none at all. As a matter of fact, once he discovered the true nature behind the plan, and, and let me just walk you back to the beginning of that plan. That plan was presented to Hugh Jackson after he was already hired as the head coach of the Cleveland Browns organization, and it was presented to him as a bonus 
to which he could earn up to $750,000 each year of his contract based on that four-year plan. When that plan was presented to him, it was still in construction and it was finalized and discussed at the home of Jimmy and Dee Haslam in Bretton Hall, Ohio in June of 2016, still without full explanation of what that plan really was. Um, And again, understanding that Hugh Jackson is a football coach, he's not an analytics specialist, and the process by which they were following was something that they deemed to be life-changing in all sports, and they were going to showcase this through the Cleveland Browns organization. They wanted to be the leaders of the pack in developing this type of plan, and then they themselves were going to monetize that plan further on down the line. So they kept the details of that plan and the process of how that plan worked very close to the vest. They refused on numerous occasions to explain exactly what that plan meant. When Hugh Jackson saw that plan and there were specific percentages of that 750000 allocated bonus money that was earmarked for reaching certain benchmarks within that plan, such as, for example, ranking in the lower third by aggregate rankings in specific benchmarks within the NFL. And, you know, and, uh, you know the other recruiting measures that Hugh Jackson has already addressed. So without necessarily saying that we are not trying to win for two years, they built a plan where it was impossible to be a winning team for the first two years so they can gain draft capital and increase their salary cap space so that in year three and four, as indicated in that four-year plan, they had substantial sums of money that far exceeded what they normally would have had and clearly had substantial number of draft picks, as you can tell by going through the records. Those are all public records. The only way, and for those of you who are really sports-minded, you understand how the draft works, and you only accumulate draft choices, the number one draft picks, based on your wins and losses in any specific season. So the further down the totem pole you are on a winning record, the more draft picks you get in the number one spots, which is what is most premium everybody wants. So with that being said, he was given distributions of those $750,000 quote-unquote bonus monies for hitting those specific benchmarks, of which he never really even understood what they were. Now, let's keep in mind, he was not the only one that was compensated based on that four-year plan. The other individuals compensated on that four-year plan not only were compensated, but they were the architects of that plan and knew exactly what they were doing and how they were being compensated for that plan. And that was Paul D. Podesta, Sashi Brown, and Andrew Barry. Now, two of those three gentlemen are still representing the Cleveland Browns organization to this day. Sashi Brown has moved on to another professional sports team, um, but they continue the same process by which they started in 2016. We're talking to Kimberly Demert, executive director of the Hugh Jackson Foundation, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, Coach Jackson obviously has worked for other organizations. I know analytics weren't a part of those other organizations, but we now have two organizations that we're hearing have been encouraging losing. Is this something he'd ever experienced, to your knowledge, at other uh, organizations he worked for? I will say this. In in the course of my investigations for this case, um, I did not find that to be true or accurate in any other organization that he worked for. As a matter of fact, it was quite clear and evident that the, the NFL Constitution and bylaws has very strict rules on how coaches are to be compensated for and what they cannot be compensated for. And I encourage all of your listeners and you yourselves as journalists to pull up the National Football League's Constitution and bylaws and do your own investigations on how those processes take place. 
what they are permitted to be compensated for and what they are prohibited from being compensated for. And that includes coaches, players, and all staff. Kimberly Demert is with us here. She's the executive director of the Hugh Jackson Foundation and is talking about his allegations that the Browns uh, gave bonuses to him and others essentially to tank. I, I heard Hugh mention this. We've got about two minutes left, by the way. I wonder how the record attached to Hugh from his time with the Browns has affected his ability to get other jobs or be believed in his statements about the Browns, about the NFL, about his own value. Well, you're absolutely correct. You hit the nail on the head. You know, when you really step back and look at this from from an anal, and I'm going to use the term analytic perspective because as a PI, that's what I do. Um, he was strategically targeted as a black man to be the face of an ex- analytical experiment, which included tanking. During that process, they knew that a black man was not valued as head coach material in the National Football League. So he was disposable commodity in that experiment. And as such, the National Football League, through its collective ownership, they find different ways to justify why black men do not deserve to be in those positions. And he was the perfect fall guy for that. And we went to the league, we being uh, Coach Jackson, went to the league, went through all the processes that were established by the league and how you settle grievances, brought the matter to Roger Goodell and Troy Benson in 2016, according to all records, which were introduced during arbitration. Um, and follow through with these, including documentations and letters back and forth with ownership and executives at the organization. What they were doing was not only detrimental to him as a head coach, it was detrimental to every player on that team, every coach on that team, and every black man who ever wishes to come up in the National Football League to ever hope to have the position as head coach. Kimberly, we and we warned the, league, the coach warned the league that this was going to happen to Brian Forrest as soon as he saw that happening, and here we are today. It did happen to Brian Forbes, just in a different way. We appreciate your insight and all Great of this. Stuff, Thanks so Kimberly. much for the time and the clarity and the information. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's Kimberly Demert, Executive Director of the Hugh mm. Jackson Foundation. And some important, uh, I mean, just uh, I said clarity intentionally, Sarah. Like, yes. The more information we get on this, the more information we realize the NFL has had on this. Yeah, I mean, the stuff about basically him being the perfect guy to have as the face of that plan and know that that would happen again to later coaches very much fits in with Flores' class action lawsuit and certainly is something the NFL will have to deal with if there continues to be proof that they are being hired only to fail and then be replaced by white coaches once the, the, the tanking works. Silence won't help him here. There's going to be a lot of questions to be asked. We're going to continue to break all of this down. Plus, we're going to get into a breakdown of the Olympics with an expert next, Spain and Fitz. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. There is so much going on. Uh, fantastic <laughs> stuff from uh, Hugh Jackson's executive director. We'll get back into some of the other people adding on to Brian Flores' lawsuit and, and chiming in with their own experiences. Also have to let you know that uh, Jim Harbaugh will be headed back to the University of Michigan. He called them today to let them know that he'll be going back to the school for the 2022 season. Vikings had several other candidates remaining, but now according to ESPN's Dan Graziano, the Vikings have called the other candidates to let them know they're out of the running. And Kevin O'Connell of the Rams, offensive coordinator for the Rams, has emerged as the favorite. That deal can't be done until after the Super Bowl. So sounds like the Vikings have found their man but can't make it official and it sounds like Harbaugh will be back with Michigan. Spain and Fit, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Fitz, um, we will get into some more 
on the Brian Flores stuff and this pivot point, or so it feels for the NFL. But we also have the Olympics that are starting. Kendall Coyne Schofield, who is my guest on the podcast this week, uh, just tweeted out that tonight, where she is, is their first action as the U.S. women's uh, hockey team. Technically, 8 in the morning tomorrow is when we can watch it live. Um, but there is so much swirling around this game, from COVID to the humanitarian crisis in China to um, – you know, the fact that we just had an Olympics, <laughs> there's there's so much to right. get to. And we're going to get to it with our favorite Olympic, uh, one of our favorites. Uh, no shade to the other ones that we're definitely going to have on in the next couple of weeks. USA Today columnist Christine Brennan, <laughs> uh, which I believe this is her 20th Olympics in a row, which is absolutely wild. Okay, we're oh, going to get to that awesome. in a second. But I want to ask you first, what is the biggest takeaway for you from this Brian Flores lawsuit? Hey, guys, and welcome. Good morning from Beijing. Nice. Um, the sun is rising, and uh, it's another day in paradise here. Uh, <laughs> uh, great to be on with you, and, and fascinating stuff going on here. Yes, that story, uh, I think, is, you know, we had like a, a bomb everywhere, uh, even here. And um, I, I, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I think what we know about the NFL, what we know about the awful track record of hiring Black head coaches, uh, having uh, black leadership, you know, and and uh, diverse leadership uh, within you know front offices and all of that. Uh, you know, this is a league that's what seventy percent black. The players, seventy whatever it is, mm-hmm. and think about that, and then how that doesn't translate over to the actually running the teams and and making the decisions. And obviously, this is something we've talked about before. This is not new, but so in some ways, I I think I'm I I'm sure I join many of our fellow. Uh, Journalist Sarah and uh, Fitz, that you know, this is this is it's probably time. It's probably past time that this conversation explode as it has. Um, and I know the NFL is saying, "Oh, there's nothing to see here." Well, uh, you know, it sounds like there is something to see here, and it rings true. I think that's the essence of a story. Um, I've covered a lot of these things over the years, where something starts out and then it just kind of catches fire. It becomes like a wildfire within, you know, from a amber, ember to a wildfire within, you know, hours. And this has the feel of that story, even though, again, I'm 13 time zones away from the East Coast. But <laughs> it just has the feel of something that it rings true. People can relate to it. There's now corroboration, right? Mm-hmm. And and others are talking about it. And so it's like, wow, this, this – and that's when it rings true. That's when a story has legs. That's in addition to being a story that's worthy of conversation. Of course this is uh, huge. But it's also got that sense that people you know, around the country can kind of, hmm – yeah, you know what? I, I don't. There's one right. There's one black head coach right now uh, left, Mike Tomlin. Right. So this this does have that ring of authenticity that I think will help carry the story along. Christine, obviously you're 13 time zones away because you are covering <laughs> the Olympics. Christine Brennan, USA Today columnist, joining us. So let's get to some of that because I feel like we could almost have recorded this question last summer when you were covering the Summer Olympics. How are COVID? How is COVID impacting this particular Olympics? Yeah, it's the COVID Olympics times too, you guys. You know, mm-hmm. it just, it was, it put, those listeners are saying, weren't we? I think you were leading into this. By the way, I won't tell anybody that you said I was your favorite because I, I know there's, you can tell everyone else <laughs> there's a favorite. And I, it, your secret's <laughs> safe with me on that. And, but I thank you for that, Sarah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll just keep that between us yes. and your listeners. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it's six months ago, right? So here we are. Just, we were in Tokyo literally six months ago. And um, this one is it, there's a lot of similarities, and then there are some major differences. This is a lockdown, total 
bubble the likes of which I've never seen before. So when I'm in the bus, like going from the main press center back to my hotel or from the press center to the figure skating venue, as I did yesterday, I'm in the bubble. I, I don't think short of a of a major car accident, I could ever leave that bus because the moment I would step wow. outside the bus, no one's even talking about this because you would never do it. The bus, there's no like, it's not a bus stop. It's a shuttle that goes right between the places. If you left the bus, you're out of the bubble. And I don't think you can ever get back in the bubble. You might as well just, you know, go to the airport. And I don't even know if you'd ever get your clothes back out of your hotel room. You know, it's it's that serious. And when I landed uh, from Tokyo, through L.A. Uh, to Tokyo, when I landed uh, from Tokyo right after midnight a couple of days ago, and you see in the jet bridge two people in full hazmat suits, mm-hmm. it's real, right? This becomes like, wow, this is something else. And it looks like a dystopian movie set you've just walked into. Um I will say this, in a country, I don't know if you guys know any countries where people refuse to wear masks. I can't think of any nations right off the top of my head. But in a, in a country <laughs> around the world where people are, like, fighting just to wear, like, I don't want to wear a mask, to see people in hazmat suits, one is like, wow, that's crazy and weird. On the other hand, it was like, whoa, look at the respect. Obviously, it's forced from the government here because the government's terrible. The human rights abuses are off the charts. I've said it. There I said it in a hotel room in Japan or in, yeah, uh, in China, and you've now heard it. So mm-hmm. there is no censorship, obviously, um, of us in that way. Obviously, we're lucky in that way. But when you look at it, of course, they're told to wear the hazmat suits, but also the respect it shows everyone, right? The athletes, they're really trying to put these games on. And so a uh, COVID test every day down the throat. I uh, did the nose and the throat at the airport. And a woman in a hazmat suit did that. And then uh, and now I'll, as soon as I'm done with you guys, I'll go down in the hotel here to the COVID testing area. Every media hotel has COVID testing. And I'll get the throat swab today, gagging yeah. as I go. So it is really extraordinary the length to which they're going to protect the athletes. That would be the Pollyanna view. And then the fiscal view is so that NBC and, and all the other networks and around the world rights holders can make their money and the IOC can make their money and the Chinese can make their money hosting these Olympic Games. Spain and Fitz, we're talking to Christine Brennan from USA Today out in Beijing. We don't have that much time. We'll have to have you back. And we're going to have a, a bunch of folks on the specific events and the biggest stories. But I want to ask you why, as as the events are starting already, there hasn't been much buzz. We don't mm-hmm. have the big stories and the people. Is it more the timing of the back-to-back Olympics? Is it COVID? Is it humanitarian issues? What is the biggest reason for less coverage and excitement about these Olympics? It's a great point, and I think this is going to happen throughout the games. First of all, we're used to the Summer Olympics, Sarah, where, you know, right off the bat, swimming, first day, four or five medals, gold medal here, there, you know, Caleb Dressel, Katie Ledecky, boom, boom, boom. Americans love to win. We all, every nation loves to win. Here, there might be one or two U.S. medals the first week, the entire Olympics, maybe right. three or four or five, whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? You just don't have the medal barrage. You don't have the headlines. You don't have the jet juice of, like, even if you want to look on your phone on Twitter and say, oh, look, there's Katie Ledecky winning the, winning the gold or the silver, whatever. Uh, you'll have a team medal for the U.S. in figure skating. You'll, you know, you'll have women's hockey starts tonight here. Um, but, no, it's, it's more of a it's, a it's a quainter experience. It's a smaller experience. And I think you throw in COVID and just how weird it is. Uh, people are obviously done with COVID, and, and we're all sick of it. And here we are in the United States dealing with it. So fan, it, it's winter, so you're inside. That's one thing, but there's lots going on. It's not a summer night, right, where you could just sit back and watch. And, and you know, I also think it's just 
the, the human rights issue is, is so appalling that it probably has put a damper on these games as well. Throw yeah. all that in the mix. I think that's a big reason. There are huge stories, though. Schiffer and Mikhail Schiffer, Nathan Chen and figure skating. And I think they'll, they'll get some buzz. But I, I agree with you. With the Super Bowl going on, that's the other thing. That takes away from right. the headlines of what, what was going on here at the Winter Olympics. We only have so many hours in the day, Christine, and I have to say, <laughs> uh, as upsetting as all this stuff is, and I agree, and, and it's very hard to feel not feel conflicted, you know, when you're friends with some of the athletes and you know the lifetime of work put in, it is very tough for me not to still root yep. for them, watch them, and want to tell their stories, and that's what we're going to do, so we'll probably have you back, and we appreciate the time. Good morning to you, good night to us, and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Christine. Guys, great to be with you. Thanks so much. Look forward to the next time. Take care. Christine Brennan, USA Today columnist. She's fantastic. Looking forward to her coverage. And I, I'm still really excited and I try to individualize that there are people who spent their whole life working towards this and just try to focus on that as best I can. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Save when you bundle auto, home, or motorcycle insurance. Visit Progressive.com. Coming up, what is the impact of this Brian Flores, Hugh Jackson, Stephen Ross, Dolphins, Broncos, Giants mess on the teams, on those on the tanking teams, on the players on those teams, and are there any solutions? It's next. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive. We've been talking a lot about this Brian Flores stuff and, and the NFL's response, which started with a statement that immediately said it was without merit. I'm not sure how they investigated so quickly. And then, of course, uh, some commentary about how they legally might react, which is likely to be by trying to funnel it through the CBA and make it something that they handle privately instead of through public record as a public lawsuit would uh, would allow them to, to go into hiding on a lot of this stuff. But Fitz, so much of it has already come out that it's hard to put Pandora back in the box here. I don't know if that's the right uh, analogy or, or metaphor there, but... Some of it is what it means for people who were involved with the, uh, the, the teams and, and, the, and the franchises that have been brought up. Dominique Foxworth, uh, a former player, uh, spoke to what it, what it feels like for these NFL athletes to later find out that they were part of an intentionally losing endeavor. Guys work their entire lives. As someone who did this, from the age of like 12 yep. till I got to the NFL, every freaking decision that I made in my life was a sacrifice to get to that point. Then once I got there as a third round pick, I continued to make those sacrifices in order to finally get to a second contract so that I could affect the lives of my family going That's forward. Right. The idea that I could go somewhere after sacrificing my entire life to get there and have my opportunity squandered because you want a bleeping draft pick is like <laughs> infuriating. And then the idea that you could take Brian Flores, who is a black coach and has a hard time getting a job and ask him to tarnish his reputation and to blow, which is probably going to be his only shot because black coaches have a hard time getting that second opportunity so that you can get a draft pick is unethical and despicable. Mm. I, I mean, mean, that's that, it. That's, I can't imagine. It's strong words, and now the biggest part of this is, uh, look, the NFL can say whatever they want about without merit, but they have clarified already that to uh, any conversation that uh, they've said without merit, they Mort reported earlier tonight that sources say the league will investigate allegations the Dolphins owner Stephen Ross offered Flores money to lose games. So mm, they are going to that investigate part. that por <laughs> portion of it. Uh, apparently that's going to take some time. But I, I, if I'm any player in the NFL right now, then if Miami calls me for free agency, my first question is, 
what happened here? Like, I want to know the answer to that because are you going to take the money to go play there when you don't know whether or not the team actually wants to win football games when they may be taking all of that hard work and putting it at risk because they want a better draft choice? I mean, in a world where the the market is so competitive for free agents, I wonder how free agents are going to look at Miami if we don't have real information on exactly what's happened here. Well, and Fitz, let's get down to what a lot of people are saying, which is tanking happens everywhere. We know tanking happens. If you have a system and a sport where the worst record earns you the best draft pick, it's inevitable. There's a difference, though, I think, between end of season. I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's a very fine line between understanding the benefits it can offer a team that already has no chance of winning at all um, versus what it can do to a coach's reputation, what it can do to the players on the field. And we always hear that football isn't a tanking sport. It's too dangerous to do it half-ass. The players' careers are too short. Everything's an audition for the next squad. I mean, how do you reconcile people just saying, uh, you know, tanking's part of the game? Yeah, I think for that, you can look at it and say tanking is allowed to be part of the game for, for fans in our mindset. And I understand that the NBA mindset plays into it, but in the NFL – We've always at least believed that players would never support this because their careers are so short and that realistically it's tough to tank with your guys. on the. It's tough to tank if your tanking is I'm going to give poor effort. You'd have to have either a poor game plan or you'd have to have a front office intentionally not making moves. And that's a much different sort of concept around tanking than what we've seen. So even if you want to look, because the difference between the NBA and the NFL is you can have the first pick in the NBA draft and maybe that player is John Morant or Zion, we thought, but John Morant and he Hmm. turns the Grizz around, right? That doesn't happen with one guy in the NFL typically. There still has to be other players around him. So it's never that simple of a process. So, you know, and then the other side of it is think of fantasy football players, think of gambling, like the amount of elements that come into taking that it can't even part be part of the lexicon of the NFL without problems from every single tentacle. Right. And that's something that um, Hugh Jackson's executive foundation director just mentioned that, of course, I don't know offhand and haven't looked up, but it certainly sounds like there's essentially a handbook that says, here are the things you cannot get paid to do in the NFL. And one of them is certainly losing. One of them is certainly um, incentivizing taking the L's. And for all the fans who buy tickets, if you have proof you weren't trying to win, do you have an argument to sue there for the money back on the tickets that you spent on a game that ostensibly you were supposed to win? What about all the gamblers? What about all the people making the lines for the bets? Uh, There's a lot to this. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. And I think the through line from what we're hearing from Hugh Jackson, from what we're hearing um, from um, uh, Marvin Lewis, uh, is that uh, as a black coach, you are being hired with the intent to fail and then will be replaced by a white coach when the successful part begins. And that's how this ties into Brian Flores' larger claims of, of racism and diversity issues within hiring and retaining coaches in the NFL. This is a topic we've talked about for years. We have dissected the Rooney Rule and whether it makes things better or worse. We have talked about newer additions like draft incentives to teams whose black coordinators are elevated and leave the organization for other places. Mina Kimes, I think, summed up what a lot of us are feeling who at various points in this have tried to read the tea leaves and see if there's any veracity to the claims that, oh, it's offensive coordinators that are needed or this experience is needed. Here's what she said yesterday on NFL Live. When I first started to cover the NFL years ago, back when there were six head coaches, at the time, the reason you heard a lot was, well, or the excuse, rather, was that, uh, well, you know, NFL teams, they want offensive masterminds, and they want play callers. 
And I'm not going to lie to you, I thought that was true. I kind of bought it. But then, as the years went by and the numbers dwindled, you'd see defensive coaches hired, white defensive coaches, uh, guys who had never called plays, guys from college with no experience, guys like Urban Meyer with very spotty personal records in college. And you realize that the excuses just didn't make sense. Uh, and I know there's someone at home probably screaming, well, just hire the best man for the job. To which I'd say, well, that would be nice if it's what's happening, but it's not unless you believe all of the best candidates happen to be white. Yeah, that's a big part of it, Fitz. The people who come with that all the time are telling on themselves if they believe that in a league that is 70% black, that the majority of the people qualified to coach in the league are white. Not that there should be necessarily a tie between whether you played and whatever. But what we do know is that the disproportionate opportunities offered for first-time white head coaches and then a rerun on it when it doesn't work out the first time cannot be compared to the limited opportunities for black coaches. I mean, especially you know, if the Texans do what we all think they're going to do. If you even look at Brian Flores versus Brian Dable, you have a proven successful head coach in the NFL versus a coordinator who could be good and maybe will be a better fit. But resume-wise, to make that decision without even that interview, it's pretty telling. Yeah, I, I will always say it's not about like, oh, my God, you have to go hire somebody that's black for this job. It's are we making sure that we're finding the best quality candidates by ensuring that we're talking to everybody, including minorities, for every position? That's a much different conversation. Absolutely. Charles Robinson going to join us next to continue this conversation. And is there a fix in the NFL? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. It's been a wild 24 hours. Like, it's been such a crazy day, two days in the NFL. We haven't even gotten to one of the worst-kept secrets in all the sports and terrible name change for the Washington football team. We, we haven't even had time yet. Uh, we're going to keep breaking down uh, all of the NFL news now with one of our favorite guests, Charles Robinson. You can check him out, Yahoo Sports Senior NFL Reporter. Charles, I, l let me start by asking, I, I guess, something that maybe is obvious, maybe it isn't to me, but, like, I, I was shocked to hear all of these allegations of coaches being told not to win. Is this something that's prevalent in league circles that we don't know about, or was this shocking to you? Well, I I think we have to parse through. I mean, we're, we're not at the end of figuring out exactly how this all went down. So, like, Brian Flores, obviously in the lawsuit, you know, he relates that he was sort of told directly or there was an incentive uh, laid at his feet, you know, directly about losses and, and, you know, financial gain. And it remains to be seen what the evidence is of that. Now, it is obviously is a serious allegation, but right now that's what it is. It's an allegation. Hugh Jackson's the same reality. He is saying that there was a certain bonus structure inside the Cleveland Browns that uh, in, in some way incentivized the team's underperformance. And, again, this is uh, – I, I, we are not hearing someone say, I was told to tank. You have to lose games. Instead, it was, we were offered a carrot for, you know, this performance that would enhance our draft positioning. And that, you know, Im implies an element, obviously, of tanking, of not, of not going out and putting your best, best foot forward. I would say, like, is, it, is, is this kind of thing prevalent? I had not known about financial amounts tied to things like this until these, you know, two coaches spoke out about it. Like, that definitely is, is a new one um, from where I stand in terms of 
the rest of it, though, we've we've seen teams that try to you know do the studs tear down and and build through the draft and they jettison salaries and players to try and basically hit the reset button. But and when you get finances mixed up in it, it's that's part of why this looks so bad right now. These allegations. Well, I want to talk because, you know, there's for very good reason we've been um, really caught up in, in the tanking and the payment for that. But let's get back to the original complaint here. And I know they're all related right. and they're tied to whether or not not only is it difficult to be given real interviews and hired for jobs, then retain them, but also not be used as sort of pawns when teams are struggling only to be replaced by white right. coaches when the success comes. Let's start with that beginning complaint um, against the Giants. And it, it feels almost impossible to argue anything other than what the, the the Giants are alleging, which is, no, 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 of course we hadn't make an, made a decision. It happened at the 11th hour. So then in that argument, it's just that Belichick was misinformed and or misunderstood. That's what we're going with here. Well, I, in, if you're asking me if there's wiggle room for the Giants, I, on, on the basis of what's in that lawsuit, I, I think Bill Belichick could say, I had heard that Brian was their number one candidate, and I was trying to be supportive and congratulatory to someone I have a relationship with, but the, but nowhere in that text does it say, um, you know, they they have already you know chosen you or whatever. You're like you can say, right. hey, I, I again, this is wiggle room here. You can say, hey, I, I think you know you're their guy, and <laughs> like if he had followed up with. John Mara told me you're the one they are hiring after they go through the interview with right. Brian Flores. Right. That's a different standard. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room there. And, and the idea of box checking, um, you know, they, they interviewed Leslie Frazier. So there's also sort of this, was there an element of compliance? Was there really truly an element of compliance that didn't take place? And was it box checking? And, you know, and the Giants will say, hey, we still had an interview with him and, and there was an ability to affect the process. He could have come in and blown it up at the 11th hour, 11th hour and we completely change our mind. So it's just, a, it's, let me put it this way, there's a lot of litigation, you know, right. over, over statements and intent. We're talking to Charles Robinson, Yahoo Sports senior NFL reporter, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Do you think we need to hear from Belichick at some point? Uh, I will. I mean, if I can tell you pretty flat out, like if this goes into a courtroom, you're going to hear from Bill Belichick. He's going to be on a witness stand. I mean, there's no question. Like his his material is, uh, I mean, he is a material witness. Like, he, and and he is the primary material witness. This would not have happened if Bill Belichick, you know, doesn't make a mistake with you know which Brian he's talking to in, in his cell phone. So I, I don't know. I would, I guess, I would be surprised for Bill to make any kind of a public statement at this point. You know, he doesn't. It's he's only going to be as deeply, you know, pulled into this as I think the legal process um, commands. I don't think I would be surprised if Bill would take it unto himself to go. Yeah, let me go ahead and insert right. myself into this a little bit further than making a mistake via text like message. And, and that's part of this, though, Charles, is, is between, whether it's Belichick or the NFL in general, they're not going to ask act unless forced to. And even when forced to by things like the Rooney Rule, it's become clear that the systemic racism, the institutionalized beliefs, whether overt and, and, and obvious or 
uh, implicit in, in, in their bias without even them recognizing are the cause for the problem. And so unless they are shamed into recognizing it and changing, probably nothing happens. We talked about this earlier, and I'm wondering what your take on this is. When it comes to Brian Flores, he very clearly was a top candidate. He is technically still a finalist for two jobs. So maybe this cycle he doesn't get hired because of all of this going on. But if down the line he doesn't get hired, is the NFL at risk of proving his point in a way that is somehow more dangerous? It's not like they can force a team to hire him, and those teams might be worried about future litigation against them. I mean... I would say yes, but didn't the league kind of prove Colin Kaepernick's point? I mean, yes, except for again, more subjective in terms of where you saw his talent level. And it's easier with athletes, I think, than a coach who's been going through all of these interviews and is coming off two winning seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely make that argument that, that Flores is in a more, um, advantageous point given you know his age the the reality that most people looked at him and thought oh this is a guy with 20 30 years and ahead of him in the coaching ranks and as you said you know had back-to-back winning seasons for a franchise that i don't think had done that since 2003 and you know that's uh that's, that's a heck of an argument but i i don't i would be reticent to say that this is going to be the big grand mistake because again i I guess I always thought, hey, Colin Kaepernick went to a – the guy went to a, a, a Super Bowl. He, there's no way you can keep this guy off of you know, any roster given the number of terrible quarterbacks in the league, and yet it happened, and the only real ramifications that were ever faced was a settlement check. I mean, that's, that's how it went away, and, and it's also possible that's how this goes away. So um, it's, it's a different kind of – problem I think for the league and then it's also a compound problem because it comes on the heels of other things that are in that lawsuit and one of the things that's in there is is Colin Kaepernick you you are showing a uh you're showing patterning in Mm -hmm. the behavior and and that's not going to help Charles uh, do you think this changes the NFL (laughs) man I know Honestly, I mean, I, I have history on my side, like to argue that it won't because it, I, I remember when there was six black coaches in the league and people were like, do you think this is it? Like, is this changing? Like, is this now, are things now different? And now we're down to one. And I, I just don't until I, I think that change is at the top. And I've always argued that a, a part of this is that you don't have black ownership that you don't have. I mean, obviously there are more black general managers now than before. Um, but I, I think it just, it has to trickle down from the top. There's too many times they have those special executive meetings and you stand and you watch all the people walk in that room and there are not a lot of minorities walking into that room. And I think that really, that, that room is where the league takes a lot of its shape. We just don't know that because we're never allowed in there. You guys Spain can and Fitz. Go ahead. I just have a real quick question for Charles. Um, uh, do you think that there could be accountability for Stephen Ross if it can be proved that there was money exchanged for losing based on the fact that the NFL rules implicitly state that there cannot be payment for things like that, in addition to the absolutely. allegations of um, potential yeah. tampering? Yeah, absolutely. I think if there's any proof of that, that it would be, I think, yes, there's no, I mean, that strikes, that is so fundamentally um that cuts into the uh, the marrow deeper than almost anything I'd ever heard of because it, it you now 
you call into question. I mean, it's it's fixing. I mean, there's no other way to really right. look at it. Like if someone's saying like, "Hey, go lose games," like Pete Rose didn't even do that, and he got banned from baseball for the eternity of eternity. Mm-hmm. I can't see an NFL owner of all people getting caught, essentially pushing someone to fix the outcome of games, you know, and and not be held uh, accountable in some of the most. Some people say it should, if it's true and it can be proven, he should be should cost him his team, and yeah. I think that's a pretty valid argument. Yeah. Follow him on Twitter, at Charles Robinson. Check him out on Yahoo Sports Senior NFL Reporter. Charles, always appreciate your time and insight, my friend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Charles. Don't forget, tune in to the ESPN Daily Podcast. Gets you a deep dive into a single story from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you enjoy your podcast. Coming up, the big secret reveal that wasn't much of a secret or reveal. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Series XM, Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We've obviously had a lot of uh, serious and deep conversations uh, tonight, uh, rightfully so, as it's been a serious and deep day a couple of days across the landscape of the NFL. But, Sarah, we'd be remiss if we don't at least mention the fact that the worst-kept secret in all of sports was finally revealed in one of the more meh. Like, I actually (laughs) tuned in. I was like, you know what? Here's the thing. Maybe we all know. It's like a movie. Like, you know when Scream 5 comes out that it's going to be a lot like Scream 1 through 4, but you're still excited for it. You still want the big reveal. You still go see it. So I watched the press conference with Dan Snyder and the Washington (laughs) football team thinking, you know what? They're going to razzle me. They're going to dazzle me. They're going to pizzazz this whole thing up. They did not. He basically came out and said, yeah, <laughs> terrible secret, but we're the Washington Commanders now. And they showed their uh, they showed their new spiffy unis. I don't mind them. Everybody else hates oh, them. Oh, Fitz. What, what are you I on? thought your terrible takes were just mostly about food and bad pop music. And here we are liking terrible. Okay, before I even get to that, you completely skimmed over the fact that first Joe Theismann did a radio appearance and just completely forgot that he was supposed to be keeping a secret until today, which was embarrassing enough. But then there's a helicopter that does a ride by of FedEx yeah. field zooms into a window. There's a giant poster that's already up for part of the announcement that says Washington commanders on it visible from the outside of the building before the official announcement. This is worse. We had a surprise band for our wedding. Uh, it was then called two white crew. Now it's two hype crew because of, of good reasons, but um, played <laughs> because, a ton well, of festivals. You know, good reasons. Yeah, because things happen and it just, they were like, let's just get out ahead of this. We don't want to be the Dixie Chicks and take too long. But uh, they they played festivals in Chicago for years. This amazing band that's got like a DJ and they've got fly girl dancers. And we didn't want people to know who it was until the moment that like they interrupted our speech and they were like, blah, 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 let's party and just dove into Poison by Belle Bib DeVoe. So we had everything covered with draping. You, they weren't allowed to come anywhere in the, the reception area until their performance. They walked through the front doors of the venue with their 40 ounces and their mics to like kick it off. It was all pulled off great. And that was just a wedding, okay? They didn't even put a drape over the giant poster that said Washington Commanders. <laughs> like, come on, man. This this team doesn't even have command of the name announcement. How are they going to call themselves the Commanders? Those are all staggeringly good points, by the way. I, I like all of that. Although I still imagine the Sarah Spain wedding band 
was the the was the dam band like straight out of the hangover it like was that's, it that's, although it was a bit like that when brad and i got up and performed shoop together uh, in terms see, of uh i just needed to be that. my level. mind i'm sticking with that uh, uh and it, look uh, terribly uh, but why do you hate the uni like the the, oh, the, the fit they... isn't that bad to I me mean, like it's all very you know monochrome that's fine. okay it's like couple things no okay. couple things okay the logo on the black helmets that's in the front oh i like that the little w in the front yeah I'm in for that. Okay. No. Uh, okay. When you're on the field, you're usually looking from the angle of the side angle for the fans on watching on television, for the fans in the stands. The logo on the side didn't need to be innovated and moved to a tiny little W in the front. The uniforms look like college. They look like college to me. The, the font on Commanders is a tremendous fail. The all black looks like it's a high school like four-star recruit game that you get okay. invited to okay. uh at least the black ones don't have the embarrassing font on the red ones the red ones it looks like one of those peel off stickers put on top of the front that says commanders on it it doesn't even look like it's sewn into the jersey I don't know. I, what I'm hearing here is that you're a font elitist. That what that's yes. what we're learning. You're you're very particular All on your the fonts. options in the world. The the black is least offensive because it looks like a color rush, and you're like, okay, they just like. I'd rather have fewer offensive things. It's just mostly black with numbers. The red is the worst because the font is terrible. The white, again, looks like a maybe even a community level college, not even like a SEC. Wow. Okay. See, I I thought like. It was very modern, very clean. I'm, I'm all in for like, you know, you don't have to make these things like wild and crazy for me. I don't need much. Like, I thought it was all pretty clean, pretty easy to see. Pretty, you know, I just went old man that I just said easy yeah. to see. Like, I I'm going to have a hard time I don't, seeing I don't need much. I just don't want my eyes to be strained trying to look at the details. <laughs> Well, uh, you know what? Ron Rivera seemed to have plenty to say about it. Uh, the, he's the head coach of, let's get used to saying this, the Washington Commanders. Mm. He was on Greeny, and he was asked by Greeny how the name change feels. This is what he said. We're turning the page. We're starting a whole new chapter uh, for our organization. You know, th there's so many things that have gone on, especially in the last couple of years, and, and and some things that happened that predate when I got there. But what we're looking at now is we're looking to honor our past, okay, with, with the championships we've had. But at the same time, we're, we're, we're moving forward. You know, it, it is a new chapter. It's an opportunity for us to make our own history, to, to, to create a new brand. And, and, and really, I think, uh, kind of bring back some of the traditions that this football team has had over the years. And one of the things also is get back to winning football. Okay. Starting a new chapter, but honoring our past mm. with the championships, but moving forward, creating a new brand and bringing back the past. Those are all the things <laughs> he just said. Okay. I feel bad for him because Ron Rivera's job has been a fixer. In addition to football coach, he has been, Literally the Olivia Pope of coming in and trying to clean up the mess that he was not involved in and be the face of a team as if he would fix everything. And they don't want to remove the championships they won because ain't been none of those lately. But they also want to remove all the bad stuff. So that's how you get to the point where you're saying you want to honor the past but move forward. You don't want to have the last few years be anything we talk about. Well, we would like to keep those championships and we're creating a brand new brand. But also we're bringing back the stuff from the past that people did like. I mean, it's a no-win situation for Rivera.
what you're telling me is that Rivera's got a future in politics in the D.C. Yes. area. He's already figured out how to say everything and nothing nah, at all, his, all his, at his the same time. His close relationship with Dan Snyder, though, is probably going to yeah, go ahead and remove any ability to succeed. It'd be a well-funded but ill-advised campaign from <laughs> yes, the outset. Yes. Uh, speaking of ill-advised, one other thing that's happening tonight that is a little mind-blowing to me. U.S. soccer chose, and this is according to Grant Wall on Twitter, to put tonight's World Cup qualifier outdoors in Minnesota in the dead of winter when it could have put the game in a location like Florida that would have maximized their talent advantage over Honduras. It's of note, wind chills will be between 25 and 30 degrees below zero mm. throughout tomorrow morning. Why, Sarah, make this make sense? Uh, I, I think at some point we probably very cheekily and chesty thought that we would have a benefit over the Hondurans playing in cold weather. Instead, there's like eight minutes till frostbite hits and you're asking a team that essentially needs this as a mandatory win for qualifying because it is the most winnable of the upcoming games. You've put them in a terrible position where the weather might cross off the advantage that they have over the team. Their, their, their talent not being as effective against a poorer Honduras team because you're asking them to play without the limbs that fall off after they're frostbitten. Yeah, I can't imagine playing. You know, we've we spent so much time talking about the NFL, but you have to do that during the playoffs. You don't have a choice. Right. Like They chose to do this. They looked at it and said, you know what, that's a good idea. But speaking of good ideas, the entire Honduras national team is wow. joining Freddie and Fitzsimmons that's next crazy. without a translator. It's going to be interesting. Thanks for hanging out with us. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.